Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to another episode of What's the Crack? I'm Elle Wadsworth and I'm joined with Rob Calder and Lindsay Hines. Hello. Hi. <laughs> and we're all researchers at the National Addiction Centre, King's College London. Today's episode is going to be on supervised injection rooms or fixing rooms or drug consumption rooms. And they've been in the media recently due to the UK accepting plans to open our very first one. And this has come about due to the recent increase in drug-related deaths in the UK. We will be talking about the pros and cons of fixing rooms, and then we'll be talking to Dr. Victoria Brooks on her PhD work around a trial on injectable heroin. So as a brief introduction, uh, supervised injection rooms are facilities where people who inject drugs can inject their own drugs, most commonly heroin, under supervision. So as an analogy, this is like bringing your own climbing equipment to a climbing facility. You are there with people that uh, know the climbing (laughs) surroundings, so can help you if you fall, but you have your own equipment. It's a a strong analogy. It's a strong analogy. Any other analogies, people? Yeah. I think it's like uh, bring your own booze to um, a restaurant. Exactly. Although they don't help you consume your alcohol. But they are there to ring the ambulance if you drink too much. I suppose, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're you're surrounded by people. I have one. Have one. It's like bringing your own fireworks to a bonfire. Because, you know, there's a bonfire that's... Okay, that's there. But there were also people around supervising the bonfire and you bought your own fireworks. And fire people. Fire people. Yeah. Yeah. Fire marshals. <laughs> but yeah, I think that, I'm happy with that. Bring your own fireworks yeah. to a bonfire. I think it's like bringing your own archery equipment to an archery place. Yeah. <laughs> or bringing your own heroin to a supervising <laughs> clinic. That's, that's, that's I think that's great. Analogy. I think it's the best analogy for a supervised <laughs> injection facility. <laughs> but as some br- quick aims, um, the aims of supervised injection facilities are to reduce health and social problems associated with the uh, with injecting drug use, such as risk of infection from sharing needles, reducing the number of drug users who inject on streets, and just providing a safe space to inject. So the first rooms to be introduced in the early 2000s was in Sydney in 2001, and from this opening in Sydney, it was suggested by the UK Home Affairs Select Committee Um, and it was recommended that an evaluated pilot programme of safe injection houses for heroin users would be established without delay. And then if that was successful, it would be extended to the whole country. And this was in 2001, but surprise, surprise, it was rejected. Mm -hmm. And now there's what, between 90 and 100 injection rooms in the whole world. Uh Uh, There's uh, there's one in Sydney, and no, no, two in um, Sydney and one in Vancouver. Um, And yeah, and the rest are all in Europe. Okay. Um, None in America. 
There's none in America as yet, no. But like, what's funny is that obviously like this is in the news now because of Glasgow, but when doing a quick review online, everything was coming up from like 2004, 2005. And I was just like, oh, we're, we're really behind. We're really, really behind. It was like, anything from 2010s maybe? It was all like predominantly in like the early 2000s. So this is an idea which was around a long time, a long, mm. which has been around for a long time and is now finally starting to be implemented in the UK. In the UK, yeah, yeah. Has, it, has it opened in Glasgow yet or is it due to be? No, I think it's just in the works now. They gave, because the, when we talked about it last time, uh, they gave, they'd just given permission for it to be planned, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. What are the problems with injecting just on the street somewhere in an alley? I know that intuitively it seems bad. Yeah, so there aren't, uh, you know, if you get um, a medical injection at your GP surgery or at hospital, it is, uh, it's thoroughly cleaned, it's sterile, um, they're very clean, they're using very clean equipment, all of the equipment from... The, the place they take the, the drugs from, the ampules, the uh, syringe, um, the room, the person doing it, the gloves, um, hand wash, hand wash, hand wash. It's very, very clean and sterile environment. Whereas if you're doing it in a field, um, you're more likely to, say, share uh, needles. The needles are like, more likely to be dirty. Your hands are more likely to be dirty. The field is more likely to be dirty. The alley's going to be dirty, which makes you much more prone to um, infection and uh, complications from injecting. So they're the dangers to the, to the individual, and then there's the dangers to society if you've got discarded uh, needles for transmission of bloodborne viruses, and uh, needle stick injury is the kind of official term for accidentally pricking yourself on, on a, a dirty needle. Um, so these are the risks of, that people who are <clears throat> injecting heroin are facing when they're you know, just injecting wherever they can, like yeah. where they can find a space. Yeah, mm. um, it's part of, that, uh, part of that risky behaviour. And one of the things that underlies this uh, issue is that the behaviour of unsafe injecting is, ve- is very risky. It's a very risky behaviour. Mm. Yeah, using sharing needles, using dirty needles, injecting in unsafe places is a very risky behaviour. But for the people who are doing it, the the level of risk is offset by uh, the level of addiction that they're facing and the level of need that they're facing for those drugs. Mm. Um, and it's quite an interesting set of choices that lies at the heart of um, injecting drug use of addiction and, and this particular issue. But there is obviously, <laughs> but there is obviously um, pros and cons to this, or else we would already have injecting uh, sentence all over the world, and it would be really easy. And what, and you know, the UK mm. would have had it before two thousand and seventeen. So, should we explore some cons of why we shouldn't have? Or why, why, it's a, yeah, why what, there's people against it, I guess. What's yeah. people's problem with it? Why hasn't yeah. it been brought in immediately once they've seen it working in Sydney? <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's... So, um, so I've, I've been looking... I mean, there, there are many objections. There are some um, evidence-based objections. So there are researchers and research studies that urge caution and, um, and speak out against um, injecting rooms. And then there are media objections, and I think the two are fairly uh, distinct. So... Um, it's, it's a controversial issue for the for the public and in the media because uh, but there's this whole um, association with heroin addiction, specifically heroin addiction and um, uh, crime, and there is an association with with addiction and crime. Um, and certainly through the eighties and the nineties, there was this whole uh, you know heroin um, users are. Uh, kind of demonised, and there's a whole long history. Uh, there's probably another podcast on the association, the demonisation of drug users, starting from 
Um, and the HIV epidemic was in the 80s as well, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, and these kind of tombstone, doomy, what's it? And what's that? Reefer madness. You know, oh, yeah, all yeah. this kind of propaganda that, that drug users are inherently evil, they're bad people. And what they're doing is illegal. So taking heroin is illegal and injecting heroin has this real big uh, stigma about it. Um, and it's something that, that really scares people. Um, and traditionally, the way of dealing with heroin users has been to uh, put them in prison or to punish them. And the idea of saying, well, actually, instead of that, we're going to provide a room where you can do this thing that society has deemed evil. Um, and we're going to try and help you to do it safely, um, has met opposition in the media because it, it seems counterintuitive that something that is so wrong, that is so illegal, is then being condoned or um, supported. Is it the drama as well that it's our government money is being spent on yeah. you know, making it easier for this demonised section of society to do what they want to do? If you have a, a treatment which is seen as punitive, like if you have a boot camp for heroin users that the government can pay for, the media tends to be okay with those things because it's harsh um, and it gets results and it's not seen as something that's nice. Um, whereas it's, if you start giving money or um, facilities to make things more comfortable for um, a very stigmatised part of society, that's that meets more resistance. Is it a little bit of also nimbyism? So like, not in my backyard mm. aspect of it, where people don't want those uh, facilities to be near them because, you know, that brings a section of society which is portrayed as undesirable, like you're saying, mm. to their area. There was actually a, um, a city, and I can't remember which country, but I'll put the link up on ACAST, um, that said it was fine in, um, in urban areas, such as in the main cities, but the backlash came when there was one in a residential area, mm. which would make sense with the not in my backyard, literally not in my backyard. Mm. Um, but yeah, but was more than happy to have it in the city centre. It was just actually when it was residential, it was more like, oh no, oh no, mm. now we can't ignore it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's no clubs surrounding it or restaurants and fancy yeah. bars. It's somewhere we might walk past. Yeah, exactly. Somewhere we might be walking our kids past. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On the way to the climbing centre. On the way to the climbing centre. <laughs> to use my own equipment. Yeah, yeah. yeah, in a safe environment. So, yeah, so some of the uh, evidence um, that people point to is, um, and this really cuts to the centre of the argument about harm reduction and abstinence. Um, and so the arguments are that, that providing these facilities uh, can be a distraction from what is most effective. So it's treating one of these symptoms. One of the symptoms of addiction, of heroin addiction, is that people um, inject heroin in unclean circumstances. And the way to address that is to address the addiction, is to try and help people become abstinent um, from heroin, not to make that addiction more um, uh, uh, sanitised or clean or to reduce the harm of it. Um, and the arguments go that actually it can be a distraction. So people who would otherwise attempt to become abstinent, instead of that they have an injecting clinic which they can go to and actually makes their addiction more manageable to a point where they're less inclined to um, reach for abstinence. Mm. Um, Isn't it better for statistics as well to have promote abstinence, especially with just like, oh yeah, we got X amount of people off heroin this year. Mm. And so like I think... Yeah, again, with the media, it works better saying, oh, yeah, we get helping these people get off, whether it's a harm reduction, it's more of maintenance. And I suppose that if you get people off heroin, then you don't have that <coughs> continued cost of paying for yeah. methadone and um, for paying for these injecting clinics. So financially, yeah. you can see why people would want that. 
Yeah, and there's and there's some some research here that, that actually what drug users want when they come to treatment is that they want abstinence. They want to reduce their drug use. They want to become abstinent. They don't want to reduce the harms of their drug use. And this is from um, a paper by uh, McKegney, Neil et al. Um, uh, and again, as a uh, as an alert, uh, Joe Neil is my supervisor. Cronyism alert. Cronyism alert. Thank I got you. corrected last time for saying nepotism. Apparently, it's cronyism. Yeah, no, you're what right. Is cronyism? You're right to be correct. When you're like my friend did this. Oh right, okay. I'm bringing okay. my friend into it. So yeah, so in this study, they found that like 56 percent of um, people want going to drug treatment services wanted abstinence, um, and under one percent wanted safer drug use. Um, people wanted a, a lot of different things, but only under one percent wanted to continue using drugs in a safer way. That was their goal, um, and so the argument goes well. This is what people want, um, it's what society wants, it's what we should be focusing all our efforts on, is on um, uh, reducing uh, people's drug use rather than reducing the harm. Um, and these are, these are some of the kind of evidence-based arguments against it, and, and I think we already covered some of the media ones, which mm. tend to be a bit more um, hysterical mm. in nature. Mm. Drugs! Yeah. <laughs> People are taking drugs That's in my backyard. <laughs> it may look like uh, it's a 400-word article, but basically... But really, that's yeah. actually what they're saying. <laughs> God, it sells papers. Yeah. So I guess one of the other things to bear in mind about the research from... Uh, what people want from drug treatment services in the, that they wanted abstinence rather than kind of reduction was that actually a lot of that research ignored uh, a lot of the contextual factors. Um, so although people do want abstinence, it's one of the many things that they want out of treatment services and it's not a standalone um, outcome. So it was one of those things that's presented as something quite simple and straightforward, but, um, but actually... Um, kind of oversimplifies uh, what people want out of drug treatment services. Great. Um, and obviously, that is our cons, but there mm. is obviously a... Th- there's, there's positives to this, because again, <laughs> as we're saying, there's 100 centres, and it must be doing well, because we are... Well, we're introducing the first one in the UK, and they have been increasing since, what, the first edition in 86, when, you know, Switzerland started the craze, and then it's gone from there, and then what... Pretty slow burning craze. Oh, but, slow know. burning craze. But still, we've got like, to 100. Um, like, what's the crack as a podcast? <laughs> slow yeah, burning it's craze. Slow burning craze. Yeah. <laughs> One person spoke about it this week. I yeah. don't. One and a half <laughs> next week. Um, so half yeah. Half so what, what are our uh, what are the positives for this? Well, I so I agree with. Uh, Rob's stance, which is that <laughs> it's directly Rob's stance. It's all of his, Sorry, his opinions. All, with all Rob's opinions, and also <laughs> first were, time no, for everything. I was, I was allocated cons. <laughs> it means you are against it. <laughs> it. If the boot fits, Rob. Oh, um, my opinions are not relevant. So one of the main benefits of supervised injecting clinics is that they reduce um, the likelihood of overdose amongst heroin users. So overdose is the main cause of death amongst uh, people who are injecting heroin. In fact, people who are using opiates in general. Um, And uh, through putting people into, uh, or allowing people to use injecting clinics where they're in a safe space and there are people around who are supervising what they're doing, this increases people's access to naloxone, which is a drug that reverses the effect of an overdose. So um, So it stops an overdose, it hits the brain receptors 
the opiate brain receptors and puts the body into instant withdrawal, negating the uh, effect of the opiate. Um, but big up to the Sydney um, uh, Supervised Injection Centre, which when they did a review, it said that they'd se- successfully managed more than 4,400 drug overdoses without a single fatality. That is very good. That's pretty good, isn't it? Yeah. And similarly in Vancouver, mm. where they've been doing mm. it, also, again, they had overdoses, but none of them resulted in fatality. Mm. So that's an incredible thing. If you think of those people, if they were using heroin in a field uh, on the street and they have an overdose, potentially no one's going to find them in time. The people who do find them won't have naloxone with them. So this is, you know, injecting heroin is a very risky behaviour, but in this way we're able to prevent the overdose before it happens. And I guess reduces ambulance call-outs, which again would uh, reduce costs in that respect, Mm. because you're actually in the centre when it's happening. So not only have you got the access to the uh, naloxone and the medical people on site, you you know, you don't have to... If you do find someone, then you call in Mm. 999 or whatever the call is in other countries. (laughs) 911. 911. 112. 112. And there's one... Maybe this is just me. I couldn't find any health economic analysis of supervised injecting, so that's when we look at whether the costs of running the clinic outweigh the, uh, actually come out cheaper than the costs that we'd have from the harms which the clinic is reducing. But um, one of the other harms which is really, or that we really see in amongst injecting drug users is, like Rob was saying, blood-borne viruses, so things like HIV, hepatitis, so long-term conditions which once people catch them, they need constant um, treatment and maintenance to ensure that the disease doesn't get the better of them and, you know, ultimately cause death. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and one of the way, and the main way that, or the way that that is spread usually is through um, sharing needles amongst injecting drug users. Mm-hmm. And so if you've got rooms where people can go to inject, if there's also provision of uh, safe injecting equipment, like clean needles, things like that, which stop people sharing needles, then that behaviour can be reduced and those harms can also be reduced. And so what they've been finding in Vancouver where they have um, one of the first, well, in fact, probably the first injecting clinic, supervised injecting clinic in North America, um, is so they were looking at who is coming to the injecting clinic and they were trying to get an idea of uh, who those people were and checking if it, because they were seeing all these all these relatively positive outcomes and in reduction of harms amongst people, and they wanted to see if that was because the people who were being allowed into the clinic were, you know, a better, like a kind of less at risk population than those who weren't using the clinic. And what they found that was that people who traditionally would be at greater risk of um, things such as overdose and needle sharing, so people who were male, who were younger. Um, and who were using, so injecting crack cocaine as well, were, uh, you know, there was a larger proportion of them using the injecting clinic than amongst people who weren't. So they were actually attracting the higher risk. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. People, and it did seem that these harms were, you know, that this is the population that you want to be reducing the harms in. And I think there is something of abstinence that you do want to encourage people, or you do, like, you do want to get people off heroin, and you do want treatment to go towards abstinence. But there are so many different factors which influence whether someone's treatment's going to be successful and whether, you know, abstinence is going to be a viable long-term solution for them, that you want that option and also for the people who that's not going to be viable for, for them to have somewhere where they can go and the harms don't affect them, you know, they're not at these huge risks that they would be at otherwise. Yeah, there was, another, there was a study that was similar um, to what you were just saying, that it was the, the you know, the marginalised population that they were getting in and what the benefit of these fixing rooms, uh, drug consumption rooms, is that it just brought them into contact with services that they wouldn't have usually had that contact with. So if they were without fixed accommodation, they could get, you know, the links to find that, that you know, temporary accommodation that may, you know, improve, mm. uh, you know, life quality. And also with, if they weren't already on a maintenance system, such as methadone, which is the um, heroin maintenance um, drug substance, yeah. um, that they would be able to get in contact with that. Mm. And so that was also a, a really good improvement on that. Oh, that's good. So that's like a secondary... Oh, sorry, what were you going to say, Rob? So that's like a, a secondary outcome mm. of it. So you bring people in, you have these aims, which are there's somewhere safe for them and clean for them to inject, mm. but then... And you can kind of assess it on that level. And, you know, people might say, like the newspapers, mm. that it's not great, it's not what they want, it's not what we should be doing. But then there's all these softer outcomes of it, such as that. And yeah. also... One of the things which I read about is, which is also an outcome, is that people who are injecting heroin are often living in, sometimes, you know, have housing issues and they're living in hostels and places like that. And those hostels aren't allowed to have people using drugs or injecting drugs within them. So these injecting rooms then give people who are using heroin a place to go where it doesn't put them at risk of um, being thrown out of their accommodation and uh, pushed into homelessness from it. So it takes, again, pressure off housing associates. Housing associations, well, options there from families as well. Oh yeah, so that's the thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not wanting to show their kids or stuff. It actually gives it says you know another an alternative place than you know hiding. Mm. Mm. So I guess yeah. So those so there are advantages to it, and I think when you're looking at it in absolutes of oh well, it stops abstinence, it stops people striving for abstinence. I don't think that's true. I think you need a lot of options mm. to be able to tackle the harms of heroin use. Mm. So it seems like drug consumption rooms are great are great you know they have their disadvantages but if especially as in themselves they would use harms and they the fact that they can be combined with encouraging people to access other facilities and potential other harm reduction measures like providing clean needles so it seems like they can be a doorway into more positive behaviors yeah 
Okay, so I caught up with Dr. Victoria Brooks about some research that she'd been doing um, on the riot trial, which is where people were prescribed injectable heroin. So this is different to injecting rooms, uh, in the injecting rooms where, as we've talked about, people just bring their own heroin. But in this trial, it was for people who the conventional treatment hadn't worked, and it was trying to see if giving those people heroin in a safe environment could improve their outcomes. And Victoria interviewed a lot of people who'd taken part in that trial to find out about their experiences and what their outcomes were. And she's going to tell us more about that now. So the purpose of the riot trial was to um, get a group of very sort of entrenched, seriously entrenched heroin users that had been using opiates for a number of years, some virtually their entire life, um, adult life or even before, um, and get them onto a program that allowed them to um, access clean, clinically pure diamorphine, so heroin, um, and inject that in a safe um, clinical facility. The population that came into the trial were, um, there were 127 patients across clinics in London, Brighton and Darlington up in the north. Um, and they were people that had repeatedly failed to benefit from traditional opiate substitution treatment, not benefited, was sort of defined as they continued to use um, illicit heroin throughout that treatment. And also they were people that um, had historically cycled in and out of treatment. So they would enter treatment and then they would drop out of treatment, enter treatment again, drop out of treatment. The original researchers, Strang et al., and they... Um, published a paper that was in the, published in the Lancet in 2010 that showed that um, significantly patients in the injectable heroin group significantly reduce use of street heroin compared to those who were assigned to the control groups, which were oral methadone and supervised injectable methadone. Uh, what were you aiming to do in your PhD? So my PhD basically sought to understand treatment process and what made the treatment effective for patients. So under the assumption that there was more to effective treatment than just the administration of this pharmacological treatment. So the overall aim really was to kind of identify what the role of injectable opiate treatment was in the patient's overall journey of recovery from entrenched heroin addiction. Um, this was a holistic treatment program. So they weren't just given heroin, they got ancillary support, they got psychological support, their, their medical needs were sort of looked at and met. Um, so I really wanted to unpack that treatment um, and identify what constituted effectiveness, I suppose, from the perspective of the patient looking at their heroin use history. They talked about this kind of, um, the implication of a peer group in their heroin use. Um, so that could be partner or family in terms of their beginning to use heroin. And then this could this was linked later on to their their sort of need in their recovery for a more isolated life. So to move away from these kind of tier groups. Um, and then others sort of highlighted the desire for a drug taking community back when they first started using heroin. And then I linked this to recovery later on with the finding that um, the emphasis on community support, so through the trial, through the injectable heroin program, um, the fact that there were other um, patients in that community that were there every day getting the treatment was kind of key to, was one of the things that was key to their kind of recovery. 
Um, and that sort of referral to to treatment, um, patients were sort of very much motivated by the fact that they had repeatedly failed to benefit from conventional, conventional treatment. So they were kind of fed up with their heroin use history and lifestyle, but they were also um, fed up with the, the current treatment system which had repeatedly failed them. And they felt that the concept of injectable opiate treatment um, made them feel that they were finally being listened to and their needs were finally being met, they were being respected and it kind of instilled this sense of hope in the program. So when they entered the trial, they were very hopeful about the success of, of the program, which I would say on a psychological level is probably quite, um, quite important. In terms of the experience of injectable treatment for patients, the clinical injecting environment was really important and that was sort of viewed as a source of stability to patients as it removed the association with the heroin-using way of life. And the overall sort of theme, I guess, of that, of that section was this synergy between pharmacological and psychological recovery. So the pharmaco pharmacological treatment provided space and stability for patients to make the changes um, through, by basically reducing the chaos associated with this long-term heroin-use history. And that, in turn, allowed room for long-term psychological and holistic engagement with recovery across sort of wider areas of life. Um, and in terms of the impact of the treatment, um, overall, the sort of trajectory of harm and associated lifestyle was, was interrupted by injectable treatment. Um, and illicit use didn't always completely stop the patterns of illicit use significantly and positively altered for all people that I interviewed or patients that I interviewed. Um, and what was really interesting was that um, things like family relationships improved and patients um, enrolled on courses, there were a handful of them that were doing degree courses. So that was, that was sort of an outcome. Um, these things were happening in their lives. That was a positive outcome. But as these things went on, they also served as protective factors. So there was this kind of later drive to continue with these projects and courses and relationships that they had um, built up and improved upon. I think what was really key was that um, patients became sort of more conscious of the harm reduction side of things. They were more kind of in tune with their own sort of mortality and health and actually cared and um, I think the fact that they were within this program, a program of NHS professionals that cared about them, um, raised their sort of self-worth. It was almost like these people care about me therefore I'm worth caring for. Um, so it really yeah, raised sort of self-worth and self-esteem on some level. I think the community side of it seemed to be really, really key. So there was a community of patients all working together towards the same goal. Yeah, I guess it just gives people, it sounds like it gave people the, the space to really recover, which they didn't have before when they were involved in the heroin. Absolutely, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, completely, yeah. Many patients spoke about just this desire to feel normal and be a normal person, integrate in society, do what you do. A few of them said to me, just be like you, be like him, be like everybody else. Um, and patients sort of stated that life just became more interesting and at the same time the drug became more boring. Um, recovery was seen as an ongoing journey and the patients were committed to the process.
Um, and it wasn't always easy, actually. Um, recovery was psychologically painful for people at times. They were having to look at things and address things that they hadn't before. That they had sort of numbed with the use of heroin up until that point. So what really came out towards the end was this need for ongoing support. So even once patients have detoxed and are abstinent, there really seemed to be this need for ongoing person-centered um, support. Um, and again, I think that comes back to the need for this synergy between the psychological and pharmacological treatment um, for this group to, to be supported longer term, even if that's just through peer support groups. And perhaps our treatment system doesn't encourage this enough when someone's detoxed and abstinent. So that became quite a key finding towards the end. I guess, do you think, you, could you make any comments about what this might mean for, I guess, other heroin treatment, looking at supervised injecting rooms and things like that? And do you think any of this would have implications for how they could be imp implemented? Or I think I think so. Yeah, I think that this um, this idea of a community of others who are all working towards a similar goal. Um, the fact that the staff were consistent, so these people were going into these um, supervised facilities 365 days a year, um, and in most of the clinics, the, the staff retention was quite high, so the patients were working and seeing the same staff every day, um, and they were seeing the same patients. Um, and this whole idea of there's somebody there that, that's consistent and cares for you, um, and that that can then lead to you starting to care for yourself in a way that one probably they probably haven't up until this point. And now onto our thought piece. So, considering there are fixing rooms for heroin, what arguments are there for having them for other drugs? That is our question. This came from a, a visit I was doing to some uh, A-level students, uh, some psychology students, and I went to talk to them about um, addiction and how it relates to psychology. Um, it's always um, uh, an awful lot of fun. And um, one of the questions they asked me at the end, we'd mentioned heroin injecting rooms, said, well, if we have heroin injecting rooms, why don't we have a separate room for every drug that you can take? And I, as always, it was just a really, really good question. I didn't really have a, a good answer for it, so... Um, and I still don't have a really good answer for it, except as this is a think piece and we don't yeah. need evidence, right? No, we don't need evidence. It doesn't need to be backed with anything. <laughs> no, and it's linking... just drawn from our expertise. Yeah. <laughs> and linking back to last week, so yeah. you think maybe there are some clubs which are basically MDMA using rooms. Yeah, and pubs are alcohol using rooms. And used to have smoking rooms. They yeah, they are smoking oh, rooms. Oh, train stations. Yeah, or just like, you know, in sections of restaurants that were only allowed in the smoking area kind of yeah, thing. Right. So maybe they're like smoking consumption rooms. A foot higher than the rest. And in the back of uh, aeroplanes. And, yeah. in, and in Amsterdam you have uh, cannabis cafes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'd say, for me, the main reason that they don't have it it's not, there's not pressure to have it for other drugs um, in the same way as for heroin is because the harms from heroin use are so immediate mm. and high. Like we were saying that overdose is the leading cause of mortality amongst people using opiates. You don't have that with tobacco or with cannabis or with um, a lot of other drugs. But then, you know, with MDMA mm. and things like that, there's potential for it. 
Is it a um, argument with the demographic that is more common with um, heroin users as well? The fact that there's more problematic issues surrounding it. So having a, um, you know, supervised injection room would sort more problem. It it would solve more problems. Sorry. Um, so it is also another benefit. Whereas MDMA, maybe I don't know if I don't know more. You've got the harms of MDMA are mostly to the individual, whereas mm, heroin yeah, use associated yeah. with like other diseases like bloodborne diseases which can be spread from person to person Mm, so yeah yeah, so I see so those social yeah so there's more benefits than just the individual Mm. there's also a a kind of self-selection around drug rooms so you know most people who are if people use drugs socially they tend to use drugs with people who are using the same drugs you know you you get um you tend to get crack houses you don't get kind of um, crack and poppers houses. Yeah, <laughs> what a contrast. <laughs> um, I had another thought about heroin that whilst we're talking about the fact that there kind of are drug consumption rooms for like alcohol, you know, club drugs, if you yeah. want to argue that clubs are full of drug use, which we know that they're not necessarily due to the research that you presented last week. But I guess that the fact that for um, heroin, there is. The, prob- the reason that there's injecting rooms is because people aren't using rooms for it. It's a problem that's happening on the streets. And like we're talking about, there's mm. people finding needles on the streets, people, uh, a lot of unsafe injecting practices associated with the, yeah. the potential germs and unhygienics of injecting on the street, that this is a drug that really has a lot of safety benefits mm. from being in a clean and sterile environment because of the yeah. injecting administration. And I suppose because a lot of other drugs... <clears throat> The, you have to look at the reasons that people are taking drugs, and some drugs, like club drugs, people are taking it to in, uh, to alter their perception and their Enhance enjoyment the, of a different yeah. situation. Whereas with heroin, people are taking it. People who are, uh, have a dependency on heroin are taking it to be able to maintain their kind of physical state and to not go into withdrawal. So mm. it doesn't have those connotations with. Um, Oh, I kind of want to say it doesn't have those connotations with pleasure, which isn't true about heroin, but yeah. maybe becomes more true as people become more entrenched in addiction, that they're not taking it for pleasure at that point, yeah. but to keep off physical withdrawal symptoms yeah. and things like that. And so that's why you have a room which is simply to get this. And I guess that's part of what the riot trial was trying to get at, to give people a place where they could come and, again, meet those physical mm. withdrawal with physical needs, but in a safe environment. So the motivation of taking the drug changes... Okay, and that wraps up another episode of What's the Crack? We spoke about supervised injection facilities, the pros, the cons. We spoke to Dr. Victoria Brooks and our thought piece to conclude. Please remember to subscribe on iTunes and listen on ACAST if you need any of the links that we um, have spoken about throughout the uh, podcast episode. Um, follow us on Twitter on What the Crack Pod. And have a great week. We'll see you next time when we speak about cannabis legalization. Bye. 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 Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.